For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. 1 Corinthians 10, 26. Yes, that is our memory verse for the month of September. That idea of fullness. I have a few dates for you. Maybe you can guess these dates, but I will share them. You can see how they relate. November 2006. June 2008. February 2011. December 2019. October 2020. Anybody guess? Anybody? Oh, kids. Yes, on those five. Thanks, Nancy. On those five dates, our lives were forever dramatically very much changed. Each of those dates for us represent the addition of children into our family. But each of those dates also represent a point in our lives where the Lenhart community was dramatically changed. On each of these dates, our family community went through an incredible transformation. Two became three, then four, then five, then seven, and then finally, finally, nine. And with all these changes, there was beauty and difficulty. There was excitement and chaos, lots of chaos. There was joy, there was pain. And in so many countless ways, what we knew to be the Lenhart family home changed every single time. God has a way of using significant events to change us into the type of people that he wants us to become in community. God has never intended for us to do this alone here on earth. And we've heard this said, and perhaps some of you have heard this said before, just me and Jesus. Just me and Jesus doesn't accurately represent the fullest expressions of the gospel. The gospel, by its very nature and power, creates partnerships and community. We are, through the power of the gospel, necessarily drawn into community with one another. Transformed by its power, God has taken us out of the world and he's placed us among one another with the purpose of glorifying him by growing in love. And when we step back and we take into consideration all of Paul's writings, all of Peter's writings, all of John's writings in the New Testament, which of these two questions do you believe they are giving priority to in their writing? Is priority given to this? What kind of person are we becoming? Or, as they write to these budding communities of faith, 
spread out at the time all over the known world is the question of greater priority. Instead, this, what kind of person are we becoming in community? Living in community, friends, is beautiful, but it is also difficult. It is not easy. There is excitement as we come together, but there's also grief and mourning on this very day here in this building and with many who are worshiping with us online today. In this place, there is joy, there is excitement, but at the same time, mingled together, there's grief. There's sorrow, there's joy, but there's also pain. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul is masterfully teaching us and showing us what it looks like to live together as believers in the community of communities, the community of faith. And last week, as we were studying 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul concluded with a thought that may have been rather stunning, even shuddering to the meat lovers among us. He said this, If eating meat causes a brother or sister within my faith community to stumble, then I will never eat meat. I know some beef farmers, I know some pig farmers that would have a hard time with that statement. This week, Paul is going to go one step further. At the end of chapter 8, Paul was giving an illustration. But now, in chapter 9, he is actually going to clearly demonstrate for us how he has practiced laying down his rights for the good of the church. And friends, I will agree with you. And I know many of you may have felt this this week, as I felt this through studying these chapters. Laying down our rights is one of the more uncomfortable and difficult parts of becoming in community. Yet, this is exactly what we are called to do as we coalesce. It is a necessary practice for becoming who God desires for us to be in community. One that we will soon see in the text we're exploring today. If you have your Bibles, you want to take them out, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 18. And we are soon going to see that Paul himself was readily willing to put this in to practice. Before we read, and we are going to break our text down bit by bit today, instead of reading it all at once, before we read the beginning of our text, let's ask God to direct our time together in his word. Father, you have brought us together today in community, here and online. We are worshiping you, and this is the place where now together as a corporate activity, we take your word and you are going to instruct us. Your word is powerful and it's living and your Holy Spirit is at work even now, going before, ready to apply to each and every one of us 
what you would like us to know, what you would like us to learn. Lord, today we acknowledge that what we are studying, what we are looking at, laying down our rights, this is a difficult practice for us and we need your help to do it. But Father, we endeavor and we desire to love you well and to love one another well. And so as we gather around your text this morning, we pray that you would accomplish your good work in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds, that you would challenge us, grow us, motivate us to leave this place changed and transformed through what we study. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians 9. We are going to start this morning with the first two verses. So this is 1 Corinthians 9, verses 1 and 2. Paul, writing to the church. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus, our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. I think, friends, one of the most powerful components of Paul's ministry is the consistency with which he is willing to practice what he is preaching. Indeed, it was one of Paul's own refrains to live as I live. And Paul will lead into this portion of his letter with what will become a smattering of questions. We are going to together explore 18 verses today. And in those 18 verses, there are 18 questions. Now, for the advanced mathematicians who are listening this morning, that's an average of how many questions per verse? One. 18 verses, 18 questions, an average of one question per verse. Yet, in the first verse alone, how many questions has Paul asked? Four, four rhetorical questions. And these questions are revealing. They, they are revealing Paul's calling as an apostle. They're laying the groundworks for the rites that follow. And church, to be called as an apostle, at least two factors had to be true of one's life. First, the person had to see with their own eyes the risen Lord. And second, the apostle had to be given a call to preach the gospel. This was Paul. We remember Paul's testimony and the powerful encounter that he had with Jesus who had appeared to him on the road to Damascus. Paul's intended answer for all of these four questions in the first verse is meant to be a resounding yes. Even if some did not consider or respect Paul as an apostle. His seal or the stake or his very claim to his apostleship rested at least partly in the fruit of his ministry. Which was what had been established as the church in Corinth. And as a minister of the gospel, Paul was afforded certain rights, particularly in this case, Paul is soon going to describe his right to financial provision from the people 
he was serving. That was a right that was afforded to Paul. A right to which now he begins to give a defense. Look down at verses 3 to 7. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves at a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Once again, we're clearly observing Paul's use of questions to build a defense up in favor of that which he was rightfully entitled to. In this case, payment for his services to the church. He says, this is my defense to those who would examine me. And again, these few questions that he's asking are asked to provoke an eternal yes response. They're not asked as a matter up for debate. Paul had the freedom and the right as an apostle and a servant of the church to eat and drink according to his conscience. He had the right to a believing wife, though he had already admitted that he would be far better off without one. For one to eat and drink and take a wife, there was a level of fiscal security that was required. And in verse 6, he asserts that he, along with Barnabas, had the right to take civilian or public jobs to provide for themselves. And, and friends, this is especially due to the reality that they refused to take any finances for their work among the church. Starting then in verse 7, Paul uses three questions to illustrate and further explain why a person who makes their living in service to the church should be rightfully supported. Starting with the soldier, look at his line of reasoning. He then moves to the vineyard keeper, and then he concludes with the shepherd. And now we, we live in an agricultural community here in southern Lancaster County. So I might ask it this way. Who would raise chickens, yet still buy their poultry from the grocery store? Who might endeavor to run a pig farm? only to buy their bacon at Costco. Everyone knows the best bacon comes right from the farm. For some, Paul's illustrations, highlighting his right to financial remuneration, they may have sounded rather anecdotal, right? These are just illustrations from day-to-day -day life. Those who still held and followed the law of Moses also would not escape the scope of Paul's argument here. Watch how he shifts his argument from cultural and social illustrations to what would have been perceived among many as the rock-solid law of Moses. Take a look at verses 8 to 12. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? 
For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake. Because the plowman should plow in hope. And the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you. Is it too much if we might reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you. Do we not have even more? Not only will... Paul used a quote here in 1 Corinthians, but, uh, but later, he, he uses it now, but he's also going to use it later with Timothy, the same exact line, this idea of not muzzling the ox when it treads out the grain. And it really exposes for us Paul's complete knowledge of the Old Testament. He's taking one line in all of the Old Testament law, this verse is found one time in one line in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. You shall not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. Why would Paul pause in the middle of this line of argumentation about why a minister was entitled to wages to talk about the humane treatment of agricultural animals? What is he doing here. And so often this singular command is misapplied as a principle for how we are to treat animals. And while treating animals properly is important, this is not what Paul has in view here. An ox, friends, with a muzzle is unable to partake of the fruit of its labor. In other words, an ox is doing a lot of work for its master and he's unable to gain any return or reward for his work. Paul is talking about his rights here, not the oxen's rights. He's talking more broadly about human rights, not about the proper treatment of animals. And to understand what Paul is doing here, we must first recognize how this verse fits into the context of the ancient Near Eastern agricultural practices and then bring it forward into Paul's intended use in the passage right here. So in the ancient Near Eastern world, many people, much like the area we live in today, many people were workers of the land. One of the clearest books of the Old Testament that illustrate this reality is the book of Ruth which we studied together already and still available online if you'd like to freshen up. Not every farmer back in those days owned his own oxen for the treading out of the grain. As one ancient Near Eastern scholar examines this, quote, the economic value of the ox far outweighed the value of the threshed grain that an ox could eat while it was threshing. Economically, it wouldn't make sense if the owner of the ox muzzled his own ox while it was doing hard labor, end quote. A farmer who owned his own oxen had enough money to not have to worry about muzzling his ox while the ox was treading the field. 
treading without a muzzle, actually kept the oxen strong as they threshed the grain. They were able to eat so that, that food, that grain working as fuel, they would last longer and be more efficient and effective in the field. But what about the landowner who had less money and needed to borrow or rent an ox to tread out the grain of his field? Would they be inclined to treat that oxen with the same care as its owner? Or because they had less margins and a greater need to maximize every penny from every portion of their field, might they be more inclined to muzzle the ox to keep it from eating the valuable grain? For the landowner who muzzled the ox trying to maximize profits, in what condition would he return the ox to its owner? It's very likely the oxen would have been returned in a weakened, perhaps even broken state, unable, not ready to get back to work in its owner's fields, needing time to recover its strength and energy before being ready to return to work again. Friends, this provision in the law of Moses protected an Israelite from being taken advantage of or of unjust treatment were someone to rent or borrow their ox from them. In other words, as author Justin Taylor notes, quote, the one benefiting from the labor of an ox should not take economic advantage of the owner of the ox, end quote. Friends, it's not about the ox. All right? Theologian John Calvin joked about this passage. He said, it can't be about the ox because ox can't even read. <laughs> it's not about the ox. That's not saying we shouldn't treat our animals kindly. We should. It's not about the ox. God had provided workers... For the Corinthian church. He had provided the ox. Paul. Barnabas. Timothy. Apollos. Cephas. Others. They were the proverbial oxen. Treading the fields of the Lord. They were not to be muzzled. The workers were to enjoy a portion of the fruits of their labor. And this was pleasing to the Lord. And for the people who were being served by them. Their financial support was a matter of good stewardship. A demonstration of our gratitude for their work. When the worker is supported, the owner of the worker, in this case the Lord, is pleased. His property has been returned to him without defect or default. Has anyone in here ever gone to Grand Rental Supply? Or rented a piece of equipment from another vendor. Perhaps in light of the events of the last few weeks, some of you have rented a dehumidifier. Maybe, maybe some have rented a fan. Maybe some have rented a shop vac. When you go to one of those places, oftentimes, more often than not, at least in my experience, you have to sign a contract agreeing to return that piece of property in the similar or same state it was in, as when you had rented it. 
A similar principle is going on here. Paul is not pausing his line of reasoning to give us some niceties about the proper maintenance and upkeep of our farm animals. Look again at verse 10. Does he, speaking of the Lord, not certainly speak for our sake? It's written for our sake. Because the plowman should plow in hope. And the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. The worker in the fields who is muzzled, not provided for, loses hope, loses strength. And maybe even if forced to continue, eventually may, may even perish in their labor. Paul is making a strong case here for what was rightfully owed to him as an apostle and a minister of the gospel in the church. And he's doing that so that he could soon demonstrate by his own life an illustration of the principle that he has just taught in chapter 8. So again, let's look at this again. The last verse of chapter 8, verse 13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Now, reword this to fit in the context and how Paul modeled it in the life he was living before the church. Therefore, if receiving remuneration for my labor among you makes my brother stumble, I will never receive remuneration from among you, lest I make my brother stumble. Paul is showing us a radical surrender of his rights. He was owed and had the right to remuneration. He gave it up. He's demonstrating for us what it looks like to surrender rights for the cause of the gospel. Look at verse 12. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. In verses 12 to 18, Paul is going to use the word gospel seven times, highlighting the priority of the message that he had been given to proclaim. If you like to underline, go ahead and seek those seven instances out a while because it's the powerful message of the gospel that Paul refuses to stop proclaiming whether he receives remuneration for it or not. Three times in verses 12 to 18, he will reiterate and re repeat the premise in verse 12. As if he desires to drive a final nail in the coffin of his argument towards the right to be supported, he moves to this final illustration of temple service and the authority of Jesus' own words. Look at verses 13 and 14. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. By the way, this is a really awkward portion of scripture for the pastor to be teaching on. 
<laughs> I'm just going to be straight honest with you. Studying and preparing for this week, I, I, I thought, man, maybe I should have somebody else get up here and, <laughs> and just do this one. This is a little awkward, but it's biblical. <laughs> Matthew chapter 10. Jesus is preparing his disciples to go into the world. And, and as he sends them, he says they needed to be wise as serpents, yet innocent as doves. It was going to be a difficult task. And they would not always be welcomed or well-received in the places that they were going. Jesus prepared them. He trained them. He gave them authority over evil spirits. He provided them the power to heal diseases and what other, uh, any other conditions that they came up against. And then he sends them out. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful because we see Jesus as a true disciple maker. Much like a coach, he's training his disciples for the commission that he would later lay upon all his disciples. His training ground while he walked the earth was the lost of Israel. He's not yet sending them to the Gentiles or the Samaritans. This would come later. And he tells them this in chapter 10 of the book of Matthew. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Go, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leopards, cast out demons. The focus was to be on the message and the value and the power of the work. The wages were and are not to be the primary focus of ministry. Friends, you, you cannot be in the profession of ministry for the money. It's a wrong intention. It's a wrong motivation. And I think any person in full-time vocational ministry should tell you that. You should hear that from them. I think any one of the global workers that we support here at Calvary Monument Bible Church would affirm that very truth. It cannot be about the wage ever, period. That was not Jesus's intentions with his disciples when he sent them out. It cannot be the intention or the motivation for those who are serving today. However, while we hold that in view, we also must recognize that Jesus in the same chapter in verse 10 of Matthew chapter 10 allows for his disciples to receive the needed provisions for their ministry. Look what he says. No bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff for the laborer deserves his food. This is the only place in the Gospels where we see Jesus infer what Paul says that he commanded in verse 14 of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. But the principle remains. And Paul reminds again in verse 15. Again, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Look at verse 15. But I have made no use of any of these rights. Nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather, what? Die. 
than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. Now, this is not boasting as we typically understand the word. When we see the word boasting for the church, it often carries this connotation of negativity. We very, very rarely ever talk about boasting in a positive light. But yet that's what Paul is doing here. He's using it in a positive context. His sense of joy and ministry fulfillment is not affected or influenced by whether he is receiving remuneration from the people of God in Corinth for the work he is doing among them. In other words, what's motivating him, what's compelling him is his call. It's his love for the church. He's compelled by Christ and motivated by love. Money has no part of the motivation. He's full in Christ. He's full in his calling. The calling he's been given among the Corinthians. And whether they paid him or not, he's joyfully laying aside his right of fiscal support for the sake of the gospel. In fact, in verse 16, he implies that of even greater necessity than his own fiscal support is the necessity that the gospel be preached among the people. Look at what he concludes in verse 16. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Woe to me. I have not made it a habit in my life to woe myself. These strong words from Paul. There was a practice in 2001. Sheila and I uh, met at Black Rock Retreat. We didn't know each other before then. We were summer camp counselors. And at the time, they don't do this anymore. There was a, uh, a thing that they did. Uh, every morning you had room inspections in your cabin. And the cabin that got the lowest and worst score or whose cabin was the messiest, their cabin along with their counselors would sit on the parking lot and they would take all the leftover food from the day before and put it in five-gallon buckets because they couldn't serve it and use it again. And they'd take the food out to the parking lot and you would get what you would call a woeing. Sheila never got it because she always followed the rules and did, did everything the right way. My cabin and myself, however, we got woed on numerous occasions. And they'd take those five-gallon buckets filled with, like, disgusting leftovers, mustard, man, like, and they'd dump it on your head. And everybody'd go, whoa, whoa, because you had the worst cabin of everybody that day. Now, today you'd get a lawsuit for something like that. It just tells you how different the times were back then. But I bring that up because it was interesting. Paul's words here are strong. And they take my mind back when I read them to the verse that was the memory verse for us that summer in camp. They were the words from the prophet Jeremiah and they were emblazoned on our staff shirts and emblazoned on every shirt that a camper got that summer. At Black Rock Retreat. And the words were this. I'll share them from the NIV because it's how I've memorized them. 
His word is like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. This was Paul. This was his motivation. He was motivated to share the good news of Christ, whether he received money for it or not. And I found another interesting parallel in Paul's words. Paul's words also were reminiscent of words that I have researched before and studied, and I think all of you probably have heard before as well, Words from Martin Luther when he stood before the Diet of Worms being convicted for his stance that was against the church. He stood and he said this, quote, Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me God. Amen. End quote. The same attitude. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. His word is like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I'm weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me, God. Amen. The relationship between those phrases is incredible. The power of the gospel moves within us. It is alive and active within us. Making us bold, making us courageous, giving us strength to stand in days of uncertainty, in days of difficulty, where there's fear, where things are happening all around us that we don't understand. God is using it to empower us and to strengthen us so that we continue without any thought of financial remuneration to lay down our rights For the sake of the good news and the gospel and the cause of Christ. Paul assures us and he's assuring the early church that his commitment to the gospel was not connected in any way to any financial remuneration. He was going to preach it whatever the cost and it cost him his life. Did it not? And for us today. A serious question for the motivation behind why any of us do what we do for a profession or a career is provoked here. Do we truly view our work or our profession this way? Do we see it as an assignment from God? Or are they just our careers simply a means to an end, a way to just support ourselves and our families? Paul considered His assignment as an apostle, as a stewardship, a calling, not something that he did of his own will. Rather, compelled by Christ, he laid down his life for the sake of the gospel. He sowed into people the message of the gospel and the Lord brought a harvest from his work. Friends, church, the same could be true for any one of us in the professions that we find ourselves in on a day Today basis. Sure, the time for being an apostle and an apostolic ministry is in the past. But what could happen if we all viewed our careers and our professions as stewardships, gifts given to us by God? 
are places of employment as fields that were ripe for harvest. Our communities as opportunities to shine as salt and light for the glory of God and the sharing of the good news. What might God accomplish through our sowing and planting and watering of the gospel in the spaces where he has directly placed us? Church, we are to be salt and light. We are to affect these spaces where God has planted us for the cause of Christ. The hope, the truth, the beauty of the gospel is to flow from the examples of our lives and the words of our mouths into the lives of those around us. Paul's stewardship, as he notes here in verse 17, yes, it was different than ours. But we have a stewardship too. Some, we get paid for careers or professions or services we provide. Others, some, we do not get paid. Parenting, homemaking, community, volunteer work, church involvement. The same gospel that Paul presented and proclaimed is our gospel today. It is no less powerful or effective today than it was when Paul proclaimed it years and years ago. Paul's 18th question of chapter 9 moves our study towards its conclusion this morning. Look at what he says in verse 18. What then is my reward? It's a good question, right? What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Friends, church, Paul's reward, our reward is found in laying down our rights, whatever they may be, for the sake of the gospel and the good of our brothers and sisters in Christ. The challenge that Paul presenting at the end of chapter 8 has now illustrated and demonstrated at the beginning of chapter 9, he is soon going to give further testimony and clarity to. Next week, Paul is going to reveal to us how the reach of the gospel spreads itself out as we lay down our rights and seek to become servants of all. So we have been asking this question And I will ask it and we'll explore it as our team comes to prepare for communion today. And our elders can go to the back a while as we prepare to pass the plates this morning. How might we live as disciples of Jesus and function together? Together as his church in an overwhelmingly unbelieving world. Perhaps in light of today's passage, we might say when necessary for the building up of the church, motivated by love, we lay down our rights as we lay down our lives for the glory of God and the good of one another. Let's pray as our elders come. Father, you have given us a marvelous example In your son, Jesus. For what this might look like. 
Philippians chapter 2 unpacks to us a beautiful example of our Lord and King laying down His rights to come and to dwell among us. And now here in the New Testament, Father, we look at the example of Paul, we look at the example of the other early church leaders, and we see that they were committed to this very principle as well. And while we acknowledge this morning that it is a challenge to put aside our rights, Lord, would you convict us and help us to do it, to do it well? Would you remind us that you've called us into community with one another, and that a strong and healthy and vibrant community is made up of individuals who regularly practice the quality of self-sacrifice for the good of the body. Lord, we will move into a time of fellowship now in our service where we will remember the sacrifice of our Lord Proclaim it together. This is a time of fellowship in our faith community. It reminds us and unites us around the reality that we serve one risen Lord. And we partake together of His body. His blood. Your Son Jesus is our unifier. He is the one as the book of Colossians says, holds all things together. So as we move forward to partake in communion today, our prayer would be, Lord, that we would take a few moments of silence to prepare our hearts, prepare our minds for this time of fellowship, celebrating, worshiping, proclaiming, and remembering Jesus. Now, Lord, we ask that you would unite us in this fellowship of partaking in your body and blood. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.